from the NLRPD to KTHV to behind the microphone. It's Scott Romine with Guatney Unplugged. Hey, we got in studio Dennis Thomas, and uh, Dennis has a very interesting background. I've been very excited to get him on Guatney Pl- Unplugged. How are you, Dennis? I'm doing just fine today. Now, we usually talk about cars and stuff, but it's kind of grown into anything with an engine. And you've got a background in doing a lot of cool airplane stuff. When did you first get interested in, in, in air, flying airplanes? Well, it was back in the 60s, and I went to school at the Air Force Academy. And, of course, when you go to the academy, they talk about airplanes. So when I graduated, I wanted to be a jet pilot. Really? Yes. So this is not something as a little kid. This was your, did you get, uh, I guess, called into the military or drafted, or did you just go sign up to the Air Force, or which one exactly? No, the academy, you know, it's a, a college. Okay. So I went to college there. And uh, from there, you just go into the Air Force. And, of course, the goal of most people is to fly when they graduate. Of course. Now, what did you start out flying? Went to pilot training. We flew the T-41, of course, which okay. is a little uh, prop plane. Probably something they still use. Well, they've upgraded now, but it's the same as a Cessna 172. Okay. So. It just has a different designation in the right. military. Then we go from that to the T-37, which is a little jet airplane, side-by-side jet. And from that, you go to the T-38. T-38 actually looks like a fighter. It does. And it's a very nice airplane, a fun airplane to fly. So how many hours do you think you had in like T-38s before you step out of that? Well, when you finish pilot training, that about 200 hours, a little over 200 hours. Okay. And then based upon your rank in the class, you get to pick an airplane and I was lucky enough to be fairly high in my class, and I got to pick the F-4. So then I went to F-4 training. This is so awesome. F-4 Phantom is one of those planes as a kid I was just drooled over. Um, it served from, what, 1960 to like 1982 or so? And there's still some flying in air forces around the world, so it's still up in the air in some places. I think one of the, the coolest things about that plane for me is I think it's the only plane that both the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels flew. Yes, they made a lot of noise and really pleased the crowd with it. Yeah, and, and what is the exact mission for when they designed the F-4 Phantom? Well, it had a multiple mission. It was a fighter bomber. So they did ground attack, a bombing, strafing, that type of thing. And then it was also an air superiority airplane. So it was air-to-air attack, airplane on airplane. And I always understood that, like, thrust was its major advantage. It just has so much horsepower, I guess you could say. Right. We had a lot of power, and uh, when we fought, we would want to go in the vertical up and down because we had so much power. And a lot of other airplanes wouldn't want to go vertical, or not vertical, but horizontal because they could turn faster than us. So we really had to uh, determine how we fought based upon who we were fighting and how much power we had and what their capabilities were. At that time, in the, I guess you're in the 60s, what, what would have been the major plane that would have been an opponent of an F-4? Some type of a MiG, I guess? Well, this was, of course, during the Vietnam War. Okay. And so their big plane was the MiG-21. They still had the 15 and the 17 at that time also. Which are all three more maneuverable probably than an F-4. More right. like an F-16 would be maneuverable, correct? Correct. They can turn better than the F-4. 
So they're single engine. Our enemy would have had its single engine planes. Yes. And I guess the other interesting thing about the F-4 Phantom, which you don't see this a lot today, but the Air Force had it, the Navy had it, and the Marines all were operating that very same plane. That's correct. Were there differences? A little bit. The Navy started out with the F-4B model, and it didn't have an internal gun. It just had uh, the rockets and the missiles on it. Uh, the Air Force started out with the B model, and then later on, the Air Force went to the E model, uh, which had the internal cannon, the 20-millimeter cannon. Okay. And that's what I flew, the E model. I researched that, that that, that, that was really kind of a disadvantage that most people know the fighter plane having one gun on it, you know, a gun that shoots bullets, not missiles. And F-4 went a long time without that at all. I would think at close range, fighter to fighter, that was probably a problem. And that's what they discovered when they started fighting in Vietnam. Under the rules of engagement, before they could shoot at somebody, they had to come in close, do a visual identification, and then try to back up so they can shoot their missiles. And they were too (laughs) close at that time, so they had to back up. Well, then when they put the gun on, it gave them the ability to shoot at the close ranges. I understand that originally they tried guns that were in pods out there where maybe a missile would be mounted, and it was horribly inaccurate. Right. They had a lot of trouble with that uh, bore sighting the gun. Every time they put it on or took it off, they'd have to bore sight it. So going to the internal cannon was a huge advantage. Yeah, that's just no good. I understand that, and people know this from you know watching footage of Apaches or Blue Thunder or whatever, that the F-4 was the first plane with a helmet that had a sight in it oh, at some point in time, according to the Internet. Right. When I flew it, it didn't have It didn't that. have that we yet. We did not have it. We had a sight that projected through a little glass plane that sat in front of us, and it had a little dot on it. We called it the pipper, but it was not inside the helmet. It was on the, the glass in front of us. What did, now, that's a two-seater airplane, so what was the progression of learning to fly that thing? You start out in the back seat? Well, when they first started flying the F-4 in the Air Force, they put pilots in the front seat and the back seat. And then after one tour, usually three or four years, they would upgrade from the back seat to the front seat. When I was flying it, we didn't have a pilot in the back seat. We had a navigator in the back seat. And his job was to run the radar and uh, that type of thing. And then the pilot was in the front seat. And I understand that it had one of the very first radars that could, like, scan the ground or something to that effect. Because this was also a bomber, correct? It was. A lot of the mission was close air support, uh, interdiction with high-angle bombing, that type of thing. It also was one of the first planes that had the ability to carry thermonuclear weapons. Do you remember that ever being talked about? I don't know if it was talked about. Yes, they had F-4s that sat on nuclear alert. And uh, in that case, of course, the backseater was really critical because it took two people to launch any kind of a nuclear weapon. It did. It took two people to do it, I guess. Well, you wouldn't think about that because it would on a submarine. Here you are in a plane, I guess so. Um, the range, I guess, was a great thing about the Phantom. It had a lot of fuel, correct? We had 12,000 pounds internal, and we could carry two wing tanks that had about 1,300 pounds each. And then if you really needed some more fuel, you could carry a centerline tank 
and had about another 23, 2,500 pounds of gas in it. So you had incredible range for a fighter plane. Uh, for a fighter, yes. For a fighter. We burned an average of about 6,000 pounds an hour on the thing. So that gave us about a three-hour range with all three tanks. Gosh, if you own one personally, it would be expensive to fly it around, wouldn't it? Yeah. My current airplane that I have puts around at about five gallons an hour. Yeah, <laughs> not 28,000 gallons. <laughs> the F-4, when you were cruising, burned about 1,000 gallons an hour. Good grief. And at $5 a gallon, well, I can't do long division, but I know that's a lot. It's a big number. Now, I understand the F-4 Phantom originally had some kind of engines that just let out a bunch of black smoke like one of these diesels sitting at a stoplight in Little Rock, and that the enemy could see that smoke, and that they eventually changed an engine to a smokeless setup. Are you familiar with that? Yes. When you would be cruising along, you'd usually cruise along about 0.85 Mach, something like that, and it's putting out a lot of smoke behind you. Um, When you would actually want to go into combat, you would light the afterburners, and that would, of course, eliminate the smoke. So, and then later on, they found out that was a huge disadvantage. Or in Vietnam, they could just look up and look at the smoke trail and find out where you were. So they came up with a mod for the engine that eliminated that smoke problem. Well, the original engine was a Ford, and they just put in a Chevrolet. Is that how, that's how it worked, right? <laughs> eh, they're all GE engines, oh, but yes. Oh, <laughs> is that right? Well, I'm just making a guess. <laughs> so tell us where you patrolled, where you went up every day. Okay. I was stationed in a base in Holland called Soesterberg. It was just outside of Amsterdam. And our job was uh, air superiority, and we patrolled the East German border, the north part of the East German border. So every day our mission was to go up and make sure nobody came across the border and interdict anybody that happened to wander into the identification zone. Would you generally have, how many, would you have another fighter with you, or what would the number be? When we sat alert, we sat alert with two birds on alert. So when we would take off, there'd be two airplanes that would go up at a time, and we flew line abreast about a mile apart so that we could protect each other's tail end. And then when we'd go in for an attack, one bird would go in and make a high-speed pass across the target to identify the target. And at the same time, the second bird would go in and get in a firing position behind the target about a mile behind them just in case it was a bad guy. I got you. So how often did you come into contact with a bad guy? Well, we would, sometimes they would launch us off and they would try to determine what the uh, Russians' response time was. So they'd aim us straight at the border. And as we get close, they'd call us and tell us to make a hard turn so that we didn't go across the border. Right. And then a f- couple minutes later, you'd see a MiG flying on the other side and you'd flatten down the border and wave at each other and then you'd go home. Sometimes the Russians would do the same thing. They would launch off somebody at the border. They'd launch us up. We'd go up, see what they're doing, and then we'd fly back and forth on the border and go home. Wow. Now, a lot of times we would introduce people that came across the border. They would go into the ADIS uh, under radar guidance or without radar guidance, and then they'd come back, and they'd just be a blip on the radar screen. So they'd launch us off to go intercept the person to find out what it was. And I understand you had a pretty uh, hairy situation, some kind of a training incident that my friend Matthew told to him or something about a light going off in the dash. Uh, Can you tell us that story? Okay. There is a, (laughs) 
big light on the top of the dash is called a master caution light. And then there's a panel underneath that that lists all the different systems in the airplane. And when the master caution light goes off, one of the lights on the panel lights up and it tells you what's going wrong. So I was in a dogfight with a guy and I pulled on my, the stick and the master caution light goes off. So I looked down at the panel and it says I've got a hydraulic failure. Or I couldn't see what it was. Right. The light went out. So I went, okay, back into the fight, pulled again. The light went off again. I looked down and nothing was on. So I was looking at the panel, pulled on the stick, and saw I had a hydraulic failure. So I had sheared a hydraulic line and Ooh. I had to go back and land uh, without the utility hydraulics. And the utility hydraulics run the gear, the flaps, the brakes, the nose wear steering. So when I came in to land, I didn't have any way Any to put the it. gear down, the flaps down, no nose or steering. We had these little compressed air bottles that you could pull and blow the gear down. You can blow the flaps down, blow the hook down with and, these and, bottles. And where are these bottles at? Where you've had to physically get to them? Well, they're little the handles that you pull in the okay. cockpit. So you pull these handles. So on short final, I blew the gear down, the flaps down, put the hook down. I looked up. And they had all the fire trucks and everything sitting about halfway down the runway waiting to, you know, take care of me if I landed. Sure. Uh, well, when I came in, I didn't want to roll halfway down the runway with no nose wheel steering. So I took the approach end barrier and caught the barrier and stopped, you know, very quickly because mm -hmm. I was in the barrier. And it looked up and all the fire trucks are rolling down the runway and spraying their foam and all that oh, kind yeah. of stuff. So it was an interesting flight. So j don't ignore the check engine lights, what you're saying. Yeah. You know? yeah. The check engine light comes on. You got to do something about it, I guess. You look at it and see what's wrong. So what what did the guy in the back seat have to say about this? Uh, he was pretty quiet until we got out <laughs> and landed. So. You know, when you watch things, because I know I've watched it a thousand times, and you watch Top Gun, are you just sitting there seeing things that are completely outlandish? that are not realistic. I mean, it's a movie, right? But I'm sure it's not what you experienced. Well, the Top Gun movie, they use a F-14. And that was not a real good dogfight airplane. It was made as a long-range interceptor. They had missiles that would shoot miles and miles in it's front big. of It's big. It's a big airplane. So it was used in the movie as a high-performance dogfight airplane. That really wasn't the design of the airplane. Okay. But it was a great movie. Oh, it is an awesome movie. I remember seeing it on the Cinema 150 in Little Rock, the big theater. If you any good movie came out, you wanted to see it there. And you could count the rivets on the airplanes, you know, if you set up close enough. It was a great film. It was a great film. And they're making a sequel, so there's still a lot of interest in this jet fighter stuff. Yep. Um, tell me about, you get out of the Air Force, do you continue to fly planes? Well, after I got out of the Air Force, I started flying civilian planes. So for the last 30-some years, I've been flying civilian planes. And how does that compare? I mean, I'm sure there's just no comparison. You've been in an F-4 Phantom, you know, I just wouldn't think that some of these little single engines would be that fun to you. I don't know. Well, it's a totally different experience. In the F-4, you're going real high and real fast and that kind of stuff. But in the little planes, you're a lot closer to the ground. You can look around, see things. 
And I've flown several and owned several little aerobatic planes where you can get in them and you go do the loops and rolls and spins and that kind of stuff. So you get to still have the fun of flying like a fighter pilot, but not spending as much money on gas oh, sure. to do it. Definitely. Well, tell us about some of the planes you've owned. What do you own right now? Right now, I've got a little airplane, this little biplane, single-place biplane called a Youngster. It's a little aerobatic plane. Is that, that a kid plane or is that a factory plane? That or? was a home-built plane. Home-built plane. That you build and it's just a toy. It doesn't go anywhere. You just go up and play in the sky and come down and land. I have another airplane called an Air Coupe. That's a little two-place plane that you can cruise around and go places in, things like that. And then I'm building a, another plane called a Peton Pole, which is a little home built with two people in it that you can put around and fly and enjoy it. Just maybe not go real far, but no, go it's look just at Arkansas. A, you know, it cruises about 100 miles an hour. It's open cockpit. So I got it's just you. a fun plane. It's very cool. If when you get out of the military, okay, you've learned all this stuff. You've learned to fly, fly these fighters. Does your license or pilot, whatever you obtain in the Air Force, just transfer over and you have a private pilot's license in the civilian world? You have to actually take a test to get okay. the uh, civilian license. So when I was in the Air Force, they offered us the opportunity to take the test, and I did. So I got my license when I was in the Air Force. But the Air Force training, it helps, but it doesn't carry over automatically to okay. get a civilian license. Somebody wants to get into flying planes. What's the first thing you recommend they do? Find a good instructor. The instructor is the key thing to learning how to fly. You have to have somebody that you get along with who's interested in teaching and is willing to help you learn how to fly. Would you recommend someone buys a plane or rents a plane through that process? What's the best way to go there? I've heard it done both ways. Well, usually you would go out and you'd go to a, a school and rent the plane and the instructor would take you up. And you do that until you're comfortable. And a lot of times, at least through solo, you would use that plane. Uh, then sometimes people go ahead and buy a plane to get in their hours. Uh, but I would say go to a school and, and do that first before you put out the money to buy an airplane. What What is a great, we got a minute left, what's a great first airplane? Of course, the Cessnas are great airplanes, the 150, 172, uh, that type of airplane's a wonderful trainer, very forgiving and very rugged airplane to learn in. So what do they call that? A high wing airplane, High correct? wing airplane, right. And then you have some low wing airplanes like Cherokees and... Things like that. I guess they all perform a little bit differently. They do. The high and the low, they're, you know, they're very similar, but they're a little bit different. But the Cherokees are usually more advanced. So you do that after you've got your initial training in. I got you. Well, thanks so much, Dennis. Uh, Dennis Thomas, come on the show today. Thank you very much. And uh, you've had some awesome experiences. Appreciate you sharing that with us. You're welcome. Hey, Scott Romine for Guatney Unplugged. We'll be right back. <laughs> 